This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back, or welcome to the Leaving Eden podcast. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, uh, my name is Sadie Carpenter, and I was raised in a cult. But a lot of our listeners are already familiar with that story. This episode is for the people who aren't. We're going to fill you in on all of that today. That's right. Um, I am Sadie's co-host. My name is Gavrielle Hakoen. I was not raised in a cult, but I am with her today. Uh, today's episode is a little different from what we usually do because uh, we are going to look back and do maybe sort of a bit of a review, a bit of a primer, if you will, uh, for all of our new listeners so that they can stay up to date with uh, the new episodes without maybe having to go back through all of the old backstory for all of the old episodes in the catalog. You know, a lot of people like to go back and listen to all of the old episodes, and I think that's super cool. That's what I immediately do if I download a new podcast. Yeah. But we don't want you to, to miss out on the backstory that you need to follow us going forward. We've been doing this podcast for a little over a year, and we've recently gained a lot of brand new listeners. So for those people, we want to reintroduce ourselves and give you some basic information. For our longtime listeners, though, I do have some behind-the-scenes stuff I want to share with you and some additional information that we just didn't get to back in the beginning when we were still kidding ourselves about making episodes that were shorter than an hour, <laughs> <laughs> which is a pretty funny joke now. So yeah. don't worry. For for old uh, old listeners who are... I shouldn't say old listeners. What should I say? Old timers. I don't know. Veteran uh, listeners. Our, our, our loyal, our, our loyal fans. Our loyal, See, long time Loyal listeners. freaks the cult people out. It does. But, yeah, yeah. Loyalty. I, I keep it's getting a cult thing. Into, hmm. Yeah, it's like a huge cult thing. Um, so I don't want to say loyal anyway for because you can't say faithful either because that's also a cult thing. For for listeners who have been with us for a while, this won't all be rehash. I do have some some new details and some clarifications for you, so this won't be something that you've just heard word for word before. Yeah. So when we first started out the show, we didn't really know how to podcast. Uh, we got the hang of it eventually. I like to think quickly, um, but then sometimes I listen to old episodes. I'm like, mm, maybe not. Uh, but, you know, right now for us, there is a sense that, you know, when new people find our show, they've got to go back and listen to the earliest stuff, which is fine. But it's not polished. It's not up to the level of quality that we are at today. So we felt like you know, when we put out new episodes and people are getting caught up on the old stuff, they can feel a bit left out, uh, left in the dust, if you will. 
Uh, so if you're a new listener to the show, this episode is a great jumping off point. Uh, you can listen back to this one and then keep going forward, or you can you know go back through all the old ones if you want. Over the past week or so, I've actually gone back and edited the titles of the episodes of our back catalog so that new listeners can find topics that they want to hear us talk about really easily. So if you want to hear us talk about the Duggars and the IBLP, those episodes are tagged. If you want to hear us talk about theology, those episodes are tagged. Music. Uh, if you want to hear us talk about true crime, we've got a lot of cult true crime, lots of that. If you want to hear us talk about LGBTQ issues, we have those episodes as well. So if you've been listening for a while and maybe you're, uh, you want a bit of a refresher on some of this stuff, uh, this is also going to be a fun episode. We promise we'll include some new information, some new stories for you. But before we get into that, the Leaving Eden podcast is a podcast about Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult. On this podcast, we talk about this cult, other cults, we talk about religion, we talk about fundamentalism, uh, real and present danger that cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. Um, and we also sometimes snark on some fundamentalists, uh, which is kind of fun. But the goal of the show is to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, freedom of religion. And I think the best place to start off with is for Sadie to start off by saying who she is, what her life was like, how cults really work. So who am I? Yeah, who are I, you? I am a person who, if you saw me walking down the street, you would never think that I was raised in a cult. If you see me at the grocery store, I have long, bright blue hair. I am probably wearing jeans and like a metal band t-shirt. And I don't think cult is something that people would associate with me when they meet me now. But I was born into the Independent Fundamental Baptist Movement, which is called the IFB for short. And from birth to age 20, every aspect of my life was controlled and micromanaged by the rules of that group. In what way? Okay, let's let's see. What was controlled? What I wore, what I ate, where I went, where I went to school, what I learned in school, what I could read, what I could watch on TV, what music I could listen to, the way I spoke, what I did with my free time, my thoughts, my emotions, my responses to situations, and my philosophy and my worldview were all explicitly dictated by church teachings. And so what would happen to you if you disobeyed? So that's the thing about this cult. I think that the answer people are looking for to that question is that I would be beaten horribly or I would be thrown in a basement or something like that. People think cult and they think involuntary imprisonment. I think that being held physically captive is almost always the first thing that seems to come to mind for outsiders. Gates and fences and locked doors, that kind of thing. I think the first thing I asked you when you told me that you were raised in a cult was, did you live on a compound? Because I was thinking mm -hmm. about Jonestown. I was thinking about the Branch Davidians. First people to come to mind when you think about cults. Yeah, everybody for some reason goes directly to, did you live on a compound? I was not raised behind locked gates, but I was raised in a mental prison. It's a compound of the mind and the heart and the soul, and it was every bit as effective as any gate could ever be. More effective, some would say. Yes. So while beating children is very much encouraged in the IFB for children who don't follow the rules. I was fortunate enough to be raised not on the farthest extreme of that, but I rarely defied the rules of the IFB. I almost never broke a rule. I listened to unapproved music towards the end of high school, and I learned how to play Bad Romance on piano, because that was like <laughs> one of the three modern songs that I had managed to know. I occasionally watched some extremely sinful 
TV shows like Hannah Montana and America's Got Talent. <laughs> but other than than those infractions, I didn't break a lot of rules before, I guess, about age 18 or 19. If I had really broken the rules, I could have been beaten by my parents, although my parents in particular are really compassionate and they were victims of the cult as much as I was, and they didn't choose to beat us the way that they were advised to. I could have been sent to a reform home in the troubled teen industry, if you know anything about the troubled teen industry, well, IFB members own and operate quite a few of that type of place where kids are literally tortured and horribly abused. And that was held over my head. Like, if you ever become really rebellious, if you ever flout the rules, then you could get sent to the hubs of a house or you could get sent to a roll-off home. But I didn't break the rules because I was told that if I did, God would judge me. I was told that if I broke the rules... I might die or my family members might die. I was told that if I rebelled from the rules, then I was ungrateful. I didn't love God, that God despised me, that I would be so dirty and disgusting that I would make God want to vomit. So I didn't break the rules very often because I couldn't stand the guilt and the shame that came from doing that. And this group was a very strict subset of Christianity. So you were afraid of the possibility that you could possibly end up in hell for these rules. Not really, because the IFB teaches that uh -huh. if you are saved, so if you've accepted Jesus and become a Christian, if you're saved, you're always saved forever, no matter what, even if you murder somebody. So if you're saved, what? Yeah, if you're saved, you really? can go out and murder somebody and still go to heaven. Every How? time you tell me that, it still just like surprises me. Yeah, it, yeah. you will understand it more when I eventually get myself together enough to write an episode about salvation theology. It is it's such a complicated and convoluted topic that uh, as the mom of a seven month old, I don't really feel like it. <laughs> at this point. <laughs> I'll eventually explain it to you. The The idea, though, is that is once you're saved, it's done. It's a transaction. So if you claim to be saved and then you do have the desire to murder someone, maybe you're not really saved. Like, maybe you didn't mean it enough when you asked Jesus to save you. So it's this weird, like, flip-flop thing. If you're saved and you murder somebody, you still go to heaven. But if you want to murder somebody, are you really saved? And if you it's have like any doubt... Uh, yes, it's that's exactly it. So if you have any doubt about being saved, you better go back to the drawing board and ask Jesus to save you again, but then you're going to be made to feel guilty for doubting God's ability to save you in the first place. So it's quite literally damned if you do, damned if you don't. Because if you have any doubt, you might not be saved or you might be saved and you're just sinning by having doubts. But like this idea, this is not universal to all denominations of Christianity, is it? Let me split that question into two parts, if that's okay. Okay, go for it. The belief that once you're saved, you're always saved is definitely not universal, but quite a few denominations and sects of Christianity Christianity hold it. Some denominations believe that salvation is a one-time thing. You say a prayer or you believe a belief or you get baptized, whatever their condition for salvation is. You do that thing you fulfill a condition, and then God gives you grace, you're saved, you're done, you're good for all eternity. Other denominations believe that salvation is a process that happens throughout your life, like God gives you the grace up front, the amount of grace that you would need to get to heaven, and then you access that bank of grace through good actions throughout your life. So it's either you access all the grace at once, or you access all that grace slowly throughout your life and like build it up. And then there's the question of to whom God gives grace, is that to everybody or only to certain people? But that's certainly another question for another day. What's not 
universal. And what I think is extremely abusive is the guilting and shaming people so much that they doubt that they ever were saved and then further guilting and shaming them for doubting their salvation. It turns into this awful, awful cycle and I've lived through it and it is so miserable. It's probably the most miserable thing I've ever been through. Um, mm, it's I must be. Yeah, like I've been through a lot of things, including labor. <laughs> and this cycle, it's, it just makes your soul sick. It just, it's just awful, awful. The, the cycle is, I must be saved because I feel convicted about this sin and only saved people can feel conviction. But maybe that conviction is actually just guilt because anyone saved or unsaved can feel guilt. So in that case, I might not be saved, but I know that I am saved. So I'm sinning by doubting my salvation because doubting God is a sin. Well, would I be capable of committing the sin of doubting God if I were really saved? So it's a cycle of just constant guilt and self-hatred that just perpetuates and you waffle continually between I'm saved and I'm a bad person and I'm not saved and I'm a bad person. And that's not universal. That's not normal. And it shouldn't be. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really something though. That's wild. Yeah, I don't know if I can fully explain the, the soul sickness that you feel when you're stuck in that washing machine. But as a method for controlling people, just like, wow, that's, that's so effective. If you're in that cycle, you're a very miserable person. You know, you don't really have the energy to stand up for yourself because you're too worried about if you're going to die and go to hell. But say you are a member of one of these like once saved, always saved denominations. So this makes it so that your life's priority, the most good that you can do is now to get as many people saved as you possibly can. Because if you do that today, no matter what happens tomorrow, everybody dies. Those people all go to heaven for all of eternity. Right. And that's evangelism, which of course shares a root with uh, evangelical or evangelicalism. But as many people are already aware, evangelism or evangelicalism is a very broad category of Christians. If there's a church down the street from you, if they're not Catholic or Presbyterian or Episcopal, they're probably evangelistic to some degree. So beliefs about salvation that I've laid out are pretty common among Christians. But what's not common is the guilt, the shame, the cycle of self-hatred and the level of control that you see in my upbringing. So that brings me to something that I think it's important for us to talk about. And that is the difference between a religion and a cult. I was browsing a Reddit thread uh, maybe a few days ago, maybe a week ago, and I saw a post somebody posted like, what's the difference between a religion and a cult? And there were lots of sort of clever responses like 2,000 years or (laughs) tax exempt status or, well, how many people? But, you know, that's not really it. Is it? No, not at all. I want to say I'm not really offended by people who say things like all religion is a cult or Christianity is a cult. I think they're wrong, but I I think that people who say that often say it because they have been harmed by Christianity or been harmed by religion or they have seen the harm that it can do. They're just blowing off steam. I, I feel like it's really disingenuous to not be willing to acknowledge the harm that religion has done especially as a religious person. Uh, yeah. So so I don't really, I, I don't get bothered by that. If that's what somebody like needs to say to, to, to try to make sense of the harm that religion has done, they can, they can say it. I'm not going to get mad about it. I like to use the bite model for defining a cult. It's from researcher Stephen Hassan. He is probably the number one cult researcher in the world. And I like the bite model because it's not a checklist. This isn't a BuzzFeed quiz thing where, you know, the clickbait title is like, if your religion checks 19 or more out of these 31 things, it's a cult. 
it, it's mm. not that it there there is no checklist of like well if it you know if you're if there's a certain score then it's a cult what the bite model is is a list of guidelines and to be a cult a group needs to have at least one thing from each of four categories and if it has that then you can work from there and make a make your own judgment on whether it is a cult so what is the bite model the bite model is my like one of my favorite things in the world it's so useful <laughs> it is it's so, so useful. useful i feel like i talk about it probably every single day so bite is an acronym it stands for behavior control information control thought control and emotion control behavior information thought emotion bite so all this information is available on Stephen hassan's website which is freedomofmind.com so it's behavior control, information th control, thought control, emotion control. Let's start at the beginning. What is an example of behavior control? I think one of the most obvious methods of behavior control is something that's really visible from the outside of even from not being in the cult is controlling hair and clothing styles, controlling how a person presents themselves physically. Now, you might say, Sadie, lots of different groups that aren't cults require a certain dress code. A job might even require a uniform. A job's not a cult. Uh, some churches have dress codes that ask people to cover their shoulders or something simple like that. Even schools have dress codes. And that's a great illustration of how having just one of these characteristics doesn't make a group or religion a cult. But I wanted to ask you, Gavi, do you remember in detail your high school's dress code? I remember one rule in particular, which is that our vice principal had a no hats rule because hats promote gang activity. Aside from the hats rule, would you be able to tell me now how long shorts needed to be for you to be able to wear them to school or if tank tops were allowed or if there were any particular logos you weren't allowed to wear? No, like I think the only logos that we wouldn't have been allowed to wear, if, if you have like a shirt with a beer logo, that wouldn't have been allowed. Okay. Uh, other than that, like, yeah, I, I don't know. I can still tell you every detail of the clothing rules from the cult that I was raised in, as well as every detail of rules pertaining to many other areas of life, like skirts only for women, two inches below the knee when standing, sitting, or walking, no sleeveless, no cap sleeves, and absolutely no cleavage, which led me to the infamous modesty panels. What are Ugh. modesty panels? That sounds... Oh, modesty panels are basically pieces of fabric that you clip or pin onto your bra mm. straps. So it's like wearing, it looks like you're wearing a tank top under your shirt, but without the tank top part. It's extremely uncomfortable and extremely inconvenient. Like, it's like a a bib almost yes, uh, yeah yeah but it doesn't go around the back of your neck but yeah wow. like and, and they get they're like bunchy and horrible yikes and you like safety pen them in and then the safety pen comes undone and like stabs you which is awful <laughs> i also had to wear hosiery every day to high school which sucked yeah so like if you're wearing a dress and they think the dress is too low cut, then you're going to have to wear one of these things underneath to make sure that like... Yeah, or a tank top or a turtleneck, which some some facets of the IFB do. Turtlenecks are all right. I like a good turtleneck. But on a hot day, no thank you. Uh, true. So what I'm saying is that just having a dress code isn't behavior control. It isn't a sign of a cult. The fact that I had internalized this dress code so strongly that I can remember every detail of it years later, and the fact that my church was not just controlling what I wore to church, but controlling what I wore all the time, even when sleeping. That's a worrying sign. That's much different than having a dress code. Lots of religions are going to have a dress code. So Orthodox Judaism, Islam, that's got a dress code. Sikhism, that's all of these yeah. religions, they have special clothing that you're going to wear. They're a very, very narrow sects of Islam or Orthodox Judaism that 
might be able to be considered cults. I haven't looked oh, into definitely. any of them deeply enough to, to say, oh, this one definitely is, this one definitely isn't. But I know that there are sects within them that could be called cults. However, I'm also confident that Islam as a whole is not a cult. Orthodox Judaism as a whole is not a cult. Regardless of what my cult college had to say, which was that any religion that wasn't them was a cult. That's funny. But that's a good example about religious dress codes. And and that brings me to something that I want to say, which is that, so Sadie and I, we're both religious people. If you're a returning listener, you'll know this. Uh, you will know that I am very Jewish and that Sadie is currently in the process of converting to Catholicism, of all things. Yeah, so the last thing that we want to do is paint vast groups of millions of people around the world uh, with a broad and, frankly, quite dehumanizing brush I think that it would be very easy, you know, also very intellectually lazy to have a show where you get, you know, two atheists who say, oh, look at all these crazy people who think uh, like they believe in a God. Look how insane their beliefs are. Ha ha ha. Sky daddy. Ha ha ha. And then or, you know, find the craziest religious people or the the craziest, most fundamentalist people and pretend that they're representative of all Christianity Mm -hmm. in general and then pretend that that is representative of all religion as a whole. That's not what we're going to do here because, you know, that would just be intellectually dishonest. Um, and that's kind of a straw man. And that's not really something that we want to engage with. To be fair, we do support and affirm people who are non-religious. But I, what I don't support is that practice of, you know, finding the most outlandish group within Christianity and then saying that's what all Christians believe. Yeah. That's not accurate and that's not what we do and to be fair there are catholic cult groups too uh from everything that i've read i think that people of praise is a cult there are plenty of cult-like groups within religion the bottom line is you can't just go around calling anyone a cult that you don't like yeah and i've heard from many people who've grown up in various faiths uh definitely have described their experiences and i've thought okay that sounds really cult-like but uh, it, it definitely would be wrong to paint everybody with that brush so we've covered behavior control so what are some examples of information control so some examples Examples of information control might include a group that purposely lies to or misleads members, telling members that only information from inside the group is reliable and they can't trust outside information, limiting members' access to television or newspapers or reputable news sources. Those would be some examples. So is this a case of, okay, these are sources that aren't reliable, or is this a case of no sources are reliable unless pre-approved? In my experience, it's more like all of these sources sources that come from outside our group are controlled by Satan and they're lying to you. Only church leaders are responsible enough to correctly interpret the information from those sources. If you read this information, you're just going to fall victim to the devil's lies. My section of the IFB wasn't quite extreme enough that we were told not to watch the television news or read the newspaper, but they were extreme enough that you would read the newspaper or watch the news and then go ask the pastor what they thought about it. So when Y2K happened, for example, when I was a kid in the IFB, people it was we were not so extreme that people wouldn't read the news about it but we were extreme enough that people would read the news about it and then immediately go to their pastor and ask is this satanic is this the new world order taking over is this the beginning of the book of revelation and how much dried vegetable soup should i be stocking up on (laughs) Uh, so that i think that that illustrates the place that we occupied on the scale of, of extremity in the less extreme side of the ifb it's more like you can read this but you need your pastor's spiritual guidance to help you figure out what to do about it but this isn't just news media right uh scientists mostly lying to you 
except for the fact that 93% of scientists are actually creationists and they're just afraid to come out and say it because they'll lose their job. But the, but also but also all the evolutionist scientists are lying to you. Bit of cognitive dissonance for you there. Yeah, that's... We were encouraged to stay away from secular history as well as science. Oh, by the way, uh, if you want to hear us talk about history and if you want to hear us talk about creationism science, you can go back a few months ago. Uh, We have some episodes about that. I think they are titled Back to School. Uh, We were doing a whole special series on those. We didn't intend to do that much on it. And it just kind of happened. But those episodes were great. Yeah, it was super fun. We went to a a museum. We looked at dinosaur bones. Uh, So how specifically the cult denies to its members access to information is only one small part of the puzzle. The compartmentalizing information into insider versus outsider information, that's a much bigger deal. Forcing people to see, look at a piece of information and before they consider it, they've already pre-categorized it into good or bad information. Hmm. That is that is a bigger component of, of information control than the denial of access to information to begin with. Information control can also look like recruiting members to spy on each other. Ooh. And a big one within the IFB, keeping members so busy that they don't have time to research for themselves. So what are they keeping you busy doing exactly? IFB churches are notorious for expecting way more work than you would think out of their members. You know, the first time that you visit, they'll ask you to do some small job for them, which is a sales technique to get you used to saying yes. If you've ever taken a sales class, you know about that one. But as time goes on, it'll snowball into this entire list of expectations. They'll ask you to go door-to-door recruiting for the church. They'll ask you to come early on Sunday mornings to pick up neighborhood kids and take them to church on a bus. And then they'll ask you to teach Sunday school, which involves lesson planning and studying and attending a meeting every week. It's like if you give a mouse a cookie, because then they'll ask you to join the choir even if you can't sing well, which is just such a Mm. blessing for everyone involved. But then you'd also have to attend choir practice. And then they will ask you to clean the church on weekends or prepare and serve meals for the group. And it just like, it goes on and on and on and on. And there's nothing wrong with doing any of these things for your church if you like to or if you want to. But if you're IFB, it gets out of hand really quickly. And it gets to the point where you go to church on Saturday for the bus meeting. And then you go out door-to-door recruiting all afternoon Saturday. And then you show up to church at like 6.30. Sunday morning and you go get kids on the bus and then you teach a Sunday school class and then you go to church while your wife is in the nursery nursery watching everyone else's kids and then you go drop the bus kids off at home then maybe you get to go home for a couple of hours and then you're back for Sunday night church and then choir practice because you're in the choir and then you're back on Wednesday night for church and then Sunday school teachers meeting after church and then probably back on Thursday night as well for more soul winning that's their term for the door-to-door recruitment Mm. so your entire weekend and one or two or more nights a week are just gone so you're so busy that you don't have time to like it's not just uh get information from anywhere outside but it's also you know have relationships with people outside or you know anything outside of what the pastor is going to tell you is right exactly i I mean if you were working so put yourself in this situation if you were working in a regular nine to five and you had that hectic schedule on your weekends you get maybe a half a day on saturday and nothing on sunday to rest and relax on the weekends and then you were also expected to get up an hour early every day, seven days a week to read your Bible and pray for about an hour. After all that, when you finally got home from work at night, would you be sitting down and studying a science book or watching a documentary or in your Mm. couple hours of free time? Or would you just be trying to sleep and eat and catch up on laundry so you can do it all again at 530 the next morning? 
That's a good point. To give you an example of what the schedule looks like for me, as a teenager, I was in school at the church's Christian school. And then after school, I would practice piano because I was involved. I was playing piano for tons of church stuff, so I had to practice. And then on Saturday, I had about half the day with soul winning. So I had a half day off on Saturday evening if I didn't have to clean the church or do some other chore. On Sunday morning, I was going the entire day from like 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. So I would go to church, play piano for the first service, teach junior church for the second service, go over to the other church campus, play piano or interpret for sign language for that service, go home, slam some lunch really quick, get on a bus to pick up kids, take those kids to church for the afternoon church. I would teach Sunday school for those kids, play piano for a church service for those kids. And then I didn't have to go help take them home because I had to stay and clean the church building instead. And then I would get to choose between slamming some dinner in my face or taking a nap for an hour. And I usually chose the nap because I had to go right back to church to play piano or interpret sign language for Sunday night church and then hang around and watch people's kids while they did choir practice. You know, you said this to me before that you loved reading growing up. It was your, one of your favorite things. So your school didn't have science textbooks in the library that, you know, you could read, learn about these things, or was it just that you didn't want to or that you would, that wasn't your priority? Well, my school curriculum was inside information. It was from within the cult. So it would teach you Bible verses and science misinformation. But I thought I knew things about science because I had science books in school. We did have a set of encyclopedias that I read through because I was so hungry for knowledge, but there were pages redacted with Sharpie or pages just cut out if they had information that was inappropriate. So anything about sex or evolution was just cut out of our encyclopedias. Yeah, I just want to point out to everybody who is listening to this for the first time that all of the stuff that she's talking about, teaching just blatant lies in school to to children, it is all 100% legal in many states in this country. Um, And if you want to, uh, this is true, you can teach your kids that the Loch Ness Monster is real and that it is actually a dinosaur that survived the the Great Flood from Noah um, and therefore is a proof that young earth creationism is being hidden from you by the scientists. It sounds so funny hearing you say it. Yeah, well, if here's the thing is that if you guys don't believe me, you can go back and listen to the episode uh, where Sadie talks about how when she was in school, they taught her that the Loch Ness Monster is real and is a dinosaur that survived the flood of Noah and is proof of young earth creationism that is being hidden from the world by the scientists. Uh, that is... A hundred percent true. true. That yeah. is 100% true, but it sounds so much funnier <laughs> coming from somebody else's mouth. Yeah, there's an episode we did. What was that one called? I think that uh, one was called uh, The Loch Ness Monster is Really a Dinosaur. Uh, something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, something along those lines. I think it's episode it's 15 there, so. or 16. So I don't know about your position, Gabi, but I personally, I support responsible homeschooling. I really do. There are curriculums that I think should be illegal. And I think that almost every state is way too lax on making parents show that their children are being taught and are making progress. But I I do, I'm not anti-homeschooling. I'm just very, very strongly against irresponsible homeschooling. Yeah, I think I agree with you there because there's always going to be homeschool kids who, you know, get out of homeschooling and they know like eight languages and they know like factor calculus. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So that's information control. Want to take us forward, uh, talk about thought control, which is the third aspect of cults uh, as described by Dr. Uh, Is he a doctor? He is, I think he just got his doctorate. Oh, okay. Well, he's a doctor now, Dr. Stephen Hassan. How does uh, thought control manifest itself? So I want to take a breath here 
and point something out. Behavior control and information control are primarily instituted by the cult, and the members have to just follow along. So the members either choose to be compliant or they try to find ways to work around it. There are ways to rebel. You could dress by the rules at church and then go to Walmart wearing whatever you want and just hope that no church member sees you. You could research things outside the cult and get diverse points of view. But those rules are primarily... So the enforcement comes down to you, the cult member, to an extent, but the rules are coming from the top down. They're forced onto you by others, and then you choose what extent you're going to comply, to what extent you're being pressured to comply. Thought control and emotion control are more self-administered, so I tend to group group these things together into two groups. The cult will brainwash you. They will instruct you in how to administer thought control and emotion control to yourself, and they will mentally abuse you into wanting to thought control and emotion control yourself, but they can't do it to you. You have to do it to yourself. So what is going to constitute thought control and how is it going to be different from emotion control? The cult that I was in drew a very hard line between your thoughts and your feelings, which I've learned isn't typical in the real world. Um, Like you can have a thought that's also a feeling and you can voice your feelings in forms of thought, which was that was a bit of a brain bender for me at first. Hmm. So thought control and emotion control, there is a lot of overlap, but I'll try to differentiate for you. Thought control involves coercing a person to accept the cult's reality instead of their own. Like, I reject your reality and replace it with my own. (laughs) In the IFB, for example, a person may think the Teletubbies is fine. It's a cute kids show. But the IFB tells them the Teletubbies is satanic propaganda that pushes the gay agenda. Don't you see the triangle on that guy's head? And the member internalizes that reality and believes that the Teletubbies is satanic propaganda pushing the gay agenda. Another big element of thought control that the IFB does is replacing critical thinking with buzzwords, like thought-stopping words. How does that work? So, okay, so I remembered one that I haven't brought up on the show before, and I'm getting that, like, tingly feeling that I get when I know I'm about to unlock a hidden memory for a lot of people. It's fun. Mm. Right, because cool a lot of our, a lot of the people that listen to this show already are cult survivors. And, and I think about half, and, and I think it'll probably stay yeah. that way. So sorry to the half of the audience that we're about to trigger right here. You know what? I feel like they should know by now and that we always try to be nice, but we're always going to bring something up. The acronym JOY. J-O-Y stands for Jesus, others, yourself. So they tell people that happiness is fleeting. Happiness is fake. You don't want to be happy. You want to be joyful. And the only way for you to be joyful is to fulfill your commitments to Jesus first. So being in church, doing all that work, tithing, giving money, uh, fulfill your commitments to others, and then put yourself in last place. So you will never be happy if you take care of yourself first. You have to put church before everything, Jesus before everything, and then other people ahead of your own needs. So if you feel unhappy, it's because happiness is fake and you don't need to be happy. You need to be joyful. So if you feel sad, it's because you don't have joy. So that means you're being selfish in some area. You're not putting Jesus first. So if you're sad, work harder. So we did an episode a while back, and I think this was the one, uh, it was called that like St. Louis Cardinals in the title where we talked about all of those weird acronyms that they use. Uh, I don't remember you talking about that one. I'm pretty sure I didn't bring it up in that episode because it just flashbacked itself into my brain a couple of days ago, which was pleasant. <laughs> yeah. and this is my PSA about religious abuse and PTSD and what that looks like. I think I was 
taking care of my kid, doing one of those parenting tasks that just isn't the most fun, like changing a diaper, cleaning up, spit up or something. And it just attacked my brain. Like, are you being joyful right now? You should be joyful. Not because you're doing the thing that you always wanted to do. Not because you like taking care of babies. Not because you love your kid. Because those are selfish reasons. You should be joyful doing this mundane task because you're putting someone else first and you can have joy because of that. Wow. I mean, that's really... It's awful. It's like having your brain hijacked. Yeah. I mean, that's so incredibly insidious. you, You teach people these thought patterns and they will brainwash themselves for you. And you won't even have to lift a finger. Right. So I was told that thing 20 years ago, literally 20 years ago, two thirds of my life ago. And it's just laid dormant into my, in my brain. Like I was told that I should internalize it. So I internalized it. And now even years later, it just pops up and I don't want it. It's like you're thinking thoughts that are, that don't belong to you, which is awful. Another example of this is how I was taught to laugh when I heard the phrase millions of years, which we talked about in those same um, science and creationism episodes. Those are conditioned thought patterns. They teach you not how to think, but how to replace thoughts of your own with these pre-programmed thoughts. So the millions of years thing, I remember that because I saw it firsthand because we went to a science museum together and we were looking at the dinosaur bones exhibit. And you were just staring and staring at staring at that Tyrannosaurus skull. And it said this skull is 250 million years ago. That's how old it is. And you were looking at it and you looked like you were about to have like a brain aneurysm or something. You're just like (laughs) eyes out of focus or (laughs) you just just got to see my brain break as I and I think I stood and stared at it for like 20 minutes. It was probably like five minutes. Maybe okay, five it minutes, felt but... really long. It, it seems a lot less laughable when there's a piece of evolutionary and biological history right there, like two feet from your face. It was amazing skull. It was beautiful. But I still have all these pre-programmed thoughts in my head telling me not to believe what I'm seeing. So what I observe and what I am thinking don't line up. But this is because they've basically told you all your life, the earth is 6,000 years old. If you see millions and billions, you know, in in reference to anything in science, that's fake. Just laugh at that. That's fake. That's not real. They're lying to you. Yeah, it's like a computer command. The input is, I'm sad. And the output is, that your computer brain makes is the song Tell It to Jesus starts playing with a voiceover track of your own mental voice in your own mind shaming you and telling you that you don't have real joy because you're putting yourself first and you're being selfish in some area and not putting Jesus first. You input a piece of scientific evidence and the output is that you start hearing your own voice in your own mind spouting off all these thoughts that have been implanted that quote unquote disprove that evidence. It's insidious and it's terrifying because yes, you will hear other other people's voices in your mind from sermons or whatever, but you'll hear your own mental voice, your brain, your own brain, your own self-talk, thinking thoughts that you did not tell it to think. I get the impression that I sound a bit nuts to people who haven't been there, but the part of our audience who has a similar experience to me will definitely be following right along with this. And one of the things about this is, uh, so for our new listeners, Sadie got out seven, eight years ago, where she started the process of leaving. It's a process. It's not like a light switch. She's done a lot, a lot, a lot of work on herself in that time. This is still something that she's dealing with. Like the dinosaur thing, that was like two months ago, three months ago, that we we did that. Yeah, that was right around the eight-year anniversary of when I started the leaving process. Yeah. It's brainwashing is what it is. I like to call it ass- 
logical brain. Like I'm telling my brain to think for itself and I'm trying to tell my brain what I think, but it just keeps outputting the things that have been put in. It is literally like having a computer program that's hijacked your brain. And when you put in a command, it's going to output what's been programmed and you don't know the commands to fix it. So you get out of the cult and your brain does not know how to think. So that's thought controls. Uh, so let's move on to emotion control. Like I said, emotion control goes hand in hand with thought control. Just like the cult might teach you that some thoughts are bad or impure or just incorrect and teach you methods like buzzwords or methods like laughing at a certain fact to switch off those thoughts like a light switch for my Book of Mormon fans by replacing them with other thoughts. They will teach you that certain emotions are just not good. They're bad, they're impure, they're sinful. And they will teach you how to effectively turn off those emotions by replacing them with other emotions. So I hear so many people these days when they're talking about mental health, which is the hot button topic of the day, as it should be. They talk about toxic positivity, which is sort of this idea that you can just what you like you can make yourself happy. Or that, you know, if you act with a positive attitude, you know, and you express that to the outside, it'll it'll happen to you on the inside. Like, so is that kind of what you're talking about? Yes. Toxic positivity is a form of emotion control. And it's a huge one in the IFB, especially for it's for everybody, but especially for women and children. So you're taught to demonize negative thoughts of any kind and identify them as bad, wrong, or in the case of the IFB, sinful. You train yourself to immediately notice negative thoughts or emotions, and then you replace them with a positive thought or emotion. It permeates every aspect of life because instead of thinking, I'm stuck in traffic and that makes me mad, you're meant to identify that as a negative thought and replace it with, praise the Lord, I have extra time to worship God today. I'm going to put on some IFB approved music and pray. Wow. I mean, of course, like not all negative thoughts are going to be bad though, right? So I'm I'm thinking here particularly because the IFB, it's very much like a fire and brimstone type preaching style, right? Right. Or certain certain branch of his, branches of it, it's very much going to be that fire and brimstone type preaching style. Like, so if I'm thinking about like righteous anger at society for being sinful, anger at somebody for disobeying the word of God, anger at church parishioners for not being as loyally devoted as you would like them to be, that's okay. They don't call that anger. I'm, I'm not sure how to explain that. They don't classify that as the same as what I was describing as anger. So what do they call it? So they use the word anger, but they are, they, those two things are seen as totally different emotions. So being mad at somebody for disobeying the word of God is a different emotion than being mad that somebody scratched your car in the parking lot or you hit your thumb with a hammer when you were working on a building project or being upset over misogyny in the church. Those are, they have the same word, but they're considered totally different emotions. So one is good and valid and the other one is sinful. Yes. But also that righteous anger is really only for men. Women aren't supposed to feel any negative emotions at all. And we are supposed to work really hard to destroy those emotions. And anger isn't the only emotion that they perceive as sinful. Of course, they include lust in the sexual sense, but also really wanting anything at all can be covetous and, or jealousy. That and, and any negativity, there are more. It was really difficult for me to learn how to deal with jealousy under emotion control if you feel jealous of anything. Even like my friend got a new pair of shoes and I can't afford a new pair of shoes. You feel that and then you force yourself not to feel it. You replace that, that emotion with I'm so happy for my friend that she gets a new pair of shoes and you push, push it down really hard 
and you guilt and shame yourself for days or weeks over a transient feeling that you had for two minutes because your friend got a new pair of shoes and you didn't. Okay, to be fair, like that's something that I, I almost feel like that was something that we, I don't want to say we got taught that in like kindergarten. But, you know, like, I don't think that's that's not a feeling that I think is unique to the to the IFB, right? I don't think so. But it's a it's a form of emotion control, though. It's not so black and white, but that's that's interesting that you use that. Well, it's it's not black and white, because I think that healthy people who are healthy emotionally learn to deal with jealousy. We all feel jealousy. Oh, God, of course. Different things in life. You know, we all feel that emotion. That's a human emotion. I think the idea that that human emotion should just be demonized and dissolved. You you just got to get rid of it. That's the, the factor that's emotion control. Because healthy people can feel jealousy and then translate it into something more healthy, right? Like people who are emotionally yeah. healthy can feel jealousy and acknowledge it and determine why they're feeling that way and then work to change the circumstances that made you feel that way. You can spot emotion control easily if you hear a survivor say a phrase that starts with the words I was not allowed to feel. Emotion control. Yeah, yeah if if you're not if there if there's I was not allowed to feel this emotion that's emotion control. In my opinion, it works as a brainwashing technique on most people. But also, I think it's most effective on people who joined the church very young or were born into it. Because I think that that people who joined later have maybe some background in emotional self-regulation and don't tend to fall prey to that as easily. All these four aspects, we've got the behavior, information, thought, emotion control. These are the four factors which make something into a cult or not into a cult. And the degree to which they are controlling you, that's the determining factor. Yes. According to the bite model, it's does it have all four things and do all four things affect your life? It's similar to the clinical diagnosis for for OCD, because to be diagnosed with OCD, you have to not only have the obsessive uh, mental side, you have to have the compulsive external side. Uh, it's not only do I have these obsessive thoughts, but they make me actually do actions in real life. Uh, so the bite model is like that. D- do they exert these four forms of control and do they actually make you do actions in life that you wouldn't otherwise do? For me, I also, I factor in the self brainwashing as well when I'm trying to make a personal determination for me on if something is a cult or not. None of this is a hard line. Like it's not, well, if it's got all four things, it's a cult. If it's only got three, it's not. Or if they're self brainwashing, it's a cult. If not, it's not a cult. But it's all looking at these factors and seeing how much your group lines up with these factors. That being said, if you take a look at the, uh, the, the bite, I will put a link in the show notes. Uh, well, I will politely ask Gavi to put a link in the show notes. But if you if you look at, at the bite model, the IFB marks off almost every single thing on the list of examples of each type of control. Yeah, we'll also have a picture of it on our Instagram. Oh, right. We can do that. That sounds great. So we're going to take a bit of a break right now. or We are going to then come back and play a fun game and talk about various religions or groups and play, you know, the people say are cults, but we're going to play. Is it a cult? Is it not a cult? By applying these four factors to it. And then after that, we're going to get into really what is Sadie's story and how and why she left and why we're doing this podcast now. Hey, Gavrielle here. If you enjoy the Leaving Eden podcast, head over to our Facebook group, Eden Exodus, where you can talk to other fans, ask us questions, and share memes. That's 
facebook.com slash Eden Exodus. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast, and you'll get access to extended and uncensored episodes. You can also support our show by recommending it to your family and your friends. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. And now, back to the show. We are back from our break. We have talked about what makes something a cult or not. We are going to play a bit of a game here. Oh, so we've gotten some various religious groups, uh, things that people like to say are cults, uh, various other groups. We're going to play, is it a cult? A listener actually suggested this. I think it was on our subreddit. Really? I thought it. I think it was on the subreddit. I know this is a listener suggestion. I thought it was a really fun idea. So thank you, listener. I think this is going to be great. Yeah, we have a subreddit, by the way. It's called Eden Exodus. Uh, you can join that if you want. It's super fun. So the first one that I want to bring up, and I think this one is a bit of an easy one. Uh, it's a bit of a softball, if you will, is Scientology. Would you say that Scientology is a cult? Yep. Okay. Next. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, everything you need to know about Scientology is in Leah Remini's series. We will probably do episodes about Scientology Scientology eventually. But yes, every Hallmark, if anything is more of a cult than the IFB, it's Scientology. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> I do have one good thing to say about Scientology, though, if you'll humor me. Is it that Tom Cruise makes like really good movies? Because that's no. true. No, the one true thing about Scientology is that the ARC triangle is 100% valid. The ARC pr- triangle is their principle of how to connect with people. So A is affinity, R is reality, C is connection. Wait, what, so what are those? What's affinity? Is that just, do you like somebody? Yeah, affinity is like, so. so if you meet somebody, you should compliment them or find something that find something that you can connect about so when i met you it was that we were both fans of the canadian progressive rock band rush yeah like i literally did this to you <laughs> really um, so yeah, you tar- no, I, was, I wanted to be friends with you because i, I didn't, thought like, you target were cool. you but like i didn't know i do this to everybody i meet oh okay so i'm not special i was gonna i was just about to say but you're actually no you're very special yeah. um we're bffs no, I do this to everybody. Like you, you build affinity. You find a, a connection. Uh, for us, that was um, we worked at the same place, and I noticed that you had a, a Rush messenger bag, and I was like, "Oh, hey, you like Rush? My husband really likes Rush. I like Rush." Um, you share a reality, so you you find things that you agree about, places where you're in the same headspace, and you exist in that. Like when you first meet somebody, you direct conversation to things you agree on, and then you can make a connection with that person and this this is this really really works um it's like the the only you know the only good thing about science that i can say about scientology but if you're if you're talking to somebody if you have left a cult and you have family members who are still in if you're talking to somebody who has a different political point of view but you really want to have like a good civil conversation and share ideas this really works for that you build affinity you you just you start with something that is neutral and that you can that you can make the you know get something that they like that you also like you share a reality so you speak to the things that you do agree on and then you can make a connection this has actually improved my relationships with people that's a great you know what though that i was thinking about that when you were just saying it that's a great way to like if people would do that with each other like yeah. people that like you were saying people that they don't agree with politically or whatever or you know people that they see as enemies or, or opponents then i think the world might be a better place 
holy shit, Scientology might save the world. From... <laughs> I mean, even if the IFB is a cult, right? It's just just like Scientology, they have some good aspects. Nobody knows desserts like Helen and Barbara from church. Barbara is actually the first name <laughs> no of the fantastic way. dessert lady from our church. No way. So that is, no, no, I'm dead serious. <laughs> it's incredibly accurate. <sighs> and I, I feel like I might get crucified on Twitter for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Even though 90%, 95% of the IFB teaching on marriage is complete misogynistic bullshit, there are one or two things that they get right about marriage as well. What's our next contestant on cult or no cult? So here's the next one on the list. Is It's one that I see a lot of people say, and I think that whatever we say about this, it's going to be controversial, okay? But we're going— Well, you know, we don't talk about controversial topics on this podcast. Yeah, not our episode about abortion a few, like a month ago. That is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, colloquially known as Mormonism or the LDS Church. What's our take on these guys? This is a question that I get asked all the time. This is probably in my top 10 questions that I get asked. I think the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's a mouthful. Yeah. Is, I think it's similar to the Baptist Church. There are plenty of individual Baptist churches that are cult-like. Maybe they have some aspects of the bite model, but they're missing an element. Like maybe they validate our human emotions instead of practicing emotion control, or they don't teach people to self-brainwash. Of course, there are many Baptist churches from independent to Southern Baptist Convention and beyond that I would say absolutely do qualify as cults. Not just IFB, any individual church can become a cult. So I think that Mormon congregations and wards are similar. I think that most of them fall in the category of cult-like because they do practice behavior control. However, most religions practice some amount of behavior modification, and many religions that are not cults could be said to practice behavior control. I think most Mormon congregations also practice thought control in the form of restricting information about the founders of the church with misinformation about Joseph Smith and with the sealing and the temple pro process, which is secret until you do it. Um, they give historical misinformation about the founders. Hmm. That being said, I think there are individual wards and congregations that are not cults. You could maybe call them controlling groups or high pressure groups, but there are surely some that don't quite cross the line into culthood. There are wards and congregations that absolutely blaze past that line well into what I would call a cult. Of course, Warren Jefferson, like the FLDS, those could absolutely unequivocally be called cults. See, here's the thing about the LDS church is that when people say they're a cult, usually the first thing that I hear them point to is their version of the creation story is crazy or this is what they think happens when you die. The story about Joseph Smith uh, reading the tablets, that's obviously not true. I don't know. Maybe they're right about that. I don't know. Like I, I have I haven't done the research that doesn't make something into a cult, right? Like believing something that may not be true doesn't make something into a cult. That just makes you maybe wrong about something. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You ju just believing a myth as reality doesn't make you a cult. No. And, and all of the secret handshake stuff, as far as that, that's all ripped directly from the Masonic rites. But I wouldn't say that the Masons are in a cult just because they have secret handshakes. Yeah, and anyway, like, we all have, like, you know, a secret shibboleth for groups that we're in, you know? Or, like, you know, we code switch when we're talking to different kinds of people. Oh, yeah, sure. I do that. I was chatting with a listener recently, and she dropped like a little shibboleth that immediately let me know that we share a common interest and that we could talk about that thing. 
So I dropped a similar term back into the conversation. Like, yeah, I saw that. I'm on your level. Let's take that conversation to that level. So having insider speak or jargon or even secret rites and rituals, that alone doesn't make you a cult. Personally, I think, um, and this maybe this is a bit of a controversial take. I think that the Mormons get a bad rap. Okay. Like I, I live in Oregon. If you live west of the Rockies, you, there's Mormons around. You meet them. Um, you know them. There's like a lot of different kinds of people that live uh you know, around the country. I know Mormons who are very conservative. I know Mormons who are very liberal. I know Mormons who are uh, LGBTQ people and are trying to work within their community to make the official church more accepting of their kind. Personally, because, you know, I'm Jewish. As a member of an often derided religious minority group, it really kind of irks me. Like, it gets my hackles up when I see people painting Mormons with a really broad brush and saying that all of them are in a cult or, you know, all of them are brainwashed. And I certainly think that there are going to be subsets that that absolutely does apply to. But I would absolutely not go as far as saying that all of them are a cult. I probably wouldn't say that even most of them are a cult because I think that I I just don't know and I'm not and I don't know enough to really make that distinction. And I know enough people that I would say, like, I know this person. This person is a smart, like, free-thinking person. This person is not a cult member. Personally, I do stand against current Mormon leadership, like the people who are currently at the very top of the church. We've seen a lot of abuse coming out of the church, people being sexually assaulted and cover-ups happening extremely similar to what we see in the IFB. I am against that. I'm against indoctrinating children or anyone with thought control and, emo and information control. And I do think that the Mormon church as a whole promotes those things. But I think with a church as large as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we can separate the institution from individuals and we can separate the institution from individual uh, communities within that group. Uh, I don't feel comfortable saying the entire religion is a cult. No, that would be a broad brush. The church leadership probably qualifies, maybe, probably, uh, and many, many of their congregations and wards do, but I, I don't think it's fair to say every single one does. Yeah, and that being said, I mean, like you, you're currently in the process of uh, converting to Catholicism, and if we ever needed evidence that vast institutional change was possible within a large and generally uh, conservative in some ways religious organization i mean there you go get possible and necessary so uh let's let's go on to a different one do you want to do a different one now yeah let's do it we talked about the mormons we're saying maybe yes maybe no depending on the individual community like we said all like we said before not all cults are religious groups so maybe we could talk about a phenomena that isn't a religious Ooh. group but certainly has been accused of being cultish uh do you want to guess what i'm talking about what am i talking about here that sounds like are you talking about multi-level marketing i am talking about multi-level marketing or i believe the preferred term is direct sales and vector marketing <clears throat> so i've heard social selling social sell that sounds really cultish so well let's yeah. let's narrow it down to one company that a lot of people are probably familiar with and then we'll let people apply the principles of what we're saying to whatever company is top of mind for them when somebody says mlm yeah let's look at lularoe i saw the lula rich documentary Oh, loved it. I've read a good bit about the company. So let's let's look at LuLaRoe through this lens. Okay, cool. Do they practice behavior control? Yes. They expect people to post pictures of themselves wearing the brand's clothes, 
to only wear the brand's clothes. They expect people to buy more inventory. They expect consultants to lose weight or get weight loss surgery, as we saw in the documentary. All of that is behavior control. Yeah, expecting somebody to get seriously invasive medical procedures done is a pretty, for me, that's pretty high on the list of behavior control. That's extremely egregious. That's an extremely controlling thing to do. Yeah. They also told women to seduce their husbands and have sex with their husbands so the husband would give them money to join the company. So behavior control is really everywhere. So does LuLaRoe practice information control? I would say yes on this one as well, because the company would tell consultants not to read news about their lawsuits. They carefully craft the information that they tell people about the factories and the conditions there where their clothing is made. They would lie to consultants about the condition of leggings that showed up moldy or showed up with a funny smell. All of that is information control. So they're telling you that the only place that you can get the good information about them is from them. Yeah, they're dividing it into insider versus outsider information which is the classic information control tactic. They're saying that others are lying. They practice shunning of consultants who have left. Those are all factors under information control. So does LuLaRoe practice thought control? Again, I would say yes. I see messages from LuLaRoe about thinking positive. I see the buzzwords and the like replace this negative thought with this positive one. Slam dunk then. Yeah. One example of this is that if anything is positive in your life, it's hashtag because of LuLaRoe. So back to the computer brain analogy that I gave when I first talked about thought control. The input that LuLaRoe has programmed is anything good that happens to you. And the output that they have programmed is hashtag because of LuLaRoe. Yeah, just like how the IFB, anything good that happens to you is uh, because of Jesus. Yes, exactly. It's the same song, different verse. Of course, thought control runs right into emotion control. If you're sad, if you're not selling enough tacky Santa hat leggings that are so funky where the Santa hat looks like a dick on every 10th pair. (laughs) Have you seen these pictures? No. There's one with like the the leaning tower of Pisa and there's like Eiffel Tower leggings. Oh my God. The the dick leggings coming out of LuLaRoe are so bad. Mm. There's also like tail leggings. Is that what they do? I don't know LuLaRoe. They just sell leggings? They sell, they sell like leggings, anything that can be made out of Jersey knit. So like leggings, t-shirts, flowy dresses, Why would you sweaters. need a multi-level marketing of that? Can't you just sell that shit on Amazon? You need to watch the, the documentary. But basically what they do is they, they make these patterns that are even the slightest bit phallic in nature. Then they don't cut the fabric. They cut the fabric for economy, not for look. So every like 10th pair or so... The Eiffel Tower or the hot dog or whatever the Santa hat happens to be in a really awkward placement. That's hilarious. I love that. <laughs> I buy those I will, on purpose. I'll send you some pictures oh, when we get done recording. Yeah, we, but, we'll put those pictures up on the Instagram. But what LuLaRoe tells people is that if you're upset about this, that's the victim mindset and you just need to stop being so negative. So there's an example of emotion control, and there's an example of teaching self-brainwashing to get past that emotion control. Hmm. You can see tons and tons of that in the documentary um, if you would like more proof or more evidence of that. So all of that being taken into account, I think we see clear evidence of all four types of cult control in testimonies from former consultants for LuLaRoe. With such strong evidence this for all four aspects of the bite model, for me, the self-brainwashing is just a bonus. I would go ahead and say LuLaRoe is a cult. Okay, then. I think that many MLMs show these same qualities. Some are worse than others. Uh, Some show way more control 
and some are more subtle or they're missing one or more qualifications. So for, for other multi-level marketing companies, I might say cult-like instead of jumping straight to cult. I think that many MLMs and the typical way that the average one operates does qualify as a cult. So let's talk about maybe another obvious one. Um, and this is like when you say cult, first thing that pops into people's mind, Branch Davidians, Waco, Texas. So, of course, we have to talk about the cult that everybody thinks of when I say that I was raised in a cult. Yeah. They had a compound, which can contribute to both behavior control and and information control. Right, because if you can't leave or, you know, you can't get information, but or also you, you can't go anywhere. Yeah. To leave, you need a pass to leave. <clears throat> Miles Anderson. <laughs> That's a, that's that's both behavior control and information control. Uh, the Branch Davidians separated families, which is a strong mark of behavior control. Also, they believed that David Koresh was a prophet and he had special information that others didn't, which is a type of information control. From the testimonies of people who have left, there was definitely some thought control and emotion control involved. The people who got out who have spoken the most publicly about this were men like David Thibodeau. And little children. So we don't know if the emotion control was it was heavier for adult women, which is typical of cults, uh, um, especially vaguely Christian-based cults. But just based on the strong behavior control that was to the point that Koresh could take people's wives away from them, that shows complete behavior control in every aspect of life. And that's almost enough by itself with even just a little evidence of the other three areas of control that I would be comfortable calling it a cult. Yeah. So also, though, I think that when you're saying that there isn't so much evidence about uh, the thought control and emotion control, because one of the other issues is that a lot of the people who maybe they would have gotten out were people who... Right. The, like, yeah. like, and, and a lot of the adult women died because they were in the bunker with their children when the place caught on fire. Yeah. And that was... Which just kills me. Yeah. It's hard for me to even talk about because I can't... I can't quit thinking about like how many of those kids would have gotten out like I did. No, they would have like some of them would have they would have been like our age. Like, yeah, that happened. I think that happened the year we were born. Yeah, ninety three. Um, yeah. So those kids would be closer to, to my husband's age, and or like if they're the little just, babies, it just tears me up. Yeah, yeah, it just it just tears me up to think like how many of them could have gotten out and been a person like I am. Or like you are now. So yeah, so a lot of people who potentially could have gotten out and brought testimonies died, and there aren't a lot of written records from that cult because of the nature of how it ended. So it's it's more difficult to prove thought control and emotion control. I certainly believe that there was, but I like to rest more on facts when I'm going to use a strong word like cult. Like you said earlier, you can't just go around calling people you don't like a cult. It's fun, but you can't do it. <laughs> It is convenient when people that you don't like fit the qualifications of a cult so you can just say it with confidence. Yeah. So finally, I think the last one that we should talk to, and this is one that's very closely tied with your own story, um, is the Institute for Basic Life Principles, which is also known as the Quiverful Movement. The IBLP, the Institute for Basic Life Principles, is a IFB-based educational quote unquote group uh, and the homeschool curriculum that they administer, the ATI Advanced Training Institute, um, is used by people who aren't IFB, but primarily by IFB people of it's its own whole little subset of IFBism. And then the Quiverful is another subset of IFBism that is so closely related to the IBLP that, that they are almost the same thing. They're not quite the same thing, 
but they're almost almost the same thing. The way that I explain it to people when people when I, you know, explain to people like, oh, your friend was raised in a cult. You have this show together. I usually say, do you know who the Duggars are? It's like one step less crazy than them. The quiver- I say half a step, but yeah. Yeah. So the Quiverful IBLP people, that's like one step further or whatever, half a step further than you were. Yeah. I usually tell people if you know who the Duggars are and you either know who Steven Anderson is or the Westboro Baptist Church. I grew up kind of, if you imagine those three things being a triangle, I grew up kind of in the middle of the triangle. Yeah. The, I, okay. Interesting. The IVLP um, shows all of the same qualifications for being a cult that the IFB does. I think they're much worse on behavior control. They are much more regimented in, so they, they control when husbands and wives can have sex, which is. We don't even need to Definitely. say that's behavior control. Absolutely. Well, that's well, I, I, that's a that's a big step further. The IFB controls whom you can have sex with, which would be only somebody that you're married to, and it controls certain sexual behaviors in a kind of a vague, well, it's recommended kind of sense. The IBLP goes way, way past that into even controlling what days of the month a married couple can do it on, which is insane. Um. They are they they implement a lot of the same thought control and emotion control techniques that the IFB does. Their information control, I would say, is also even stronger because in the IFB, it's typical to have a TV, to watch older movies, to watch like old kids cartoons, to watch Leave It to Beaver and the Andy Griffith show and I Love Lucy and that kind of super... 1950s wholesome family programming in the IBLP it's much more typical to not have a television at all so their their information control is a step further another aspect of information control is distributing large amounts of cult propaganda which the IBLP does so i would uh, certainly classify them as a cult for very much the same reasons as I would the IFB. And the other thing about that with information control that I was thinking about is because, you know, the IBLP is all, uh, they have basically the wisdom booklets, which are the things that you teach your children out of. Like, so it, it, this is this group. This is how you teach your children. This is the information that you give them. This is what is right. Everything else is wrong. That is very much a factor of information control for them. So they are basically, the, you know, the same as you guys, but like a little bit more. I, I got to stop saying you guys because it's not you guys anymore. But, <laughs> you know, it doesn't it doesn't really bother me. I think um, that I have made a conscious de- decision with doing this podcast to make my past a part of the life that I live now. I wouldn't have made that decision if I didn't feel like I could mentally and emotionally handle that. Yeah. So people people say you or or you guys or whatever and it doesn't it doesn't really phase me. Yeah, it's like I'm saying you guys without meaning like a past tense. That's that's yeah, how I, I'm I get it. that. Um I don't know. I would check with individual survivors before doing that, but for me it's fine. It doesn't really bother me. Yeah. Uh so I think that now uh going from there it would be a good time to talk about maybe a timeline events of, you know, your upbringing, getting out, how that looked from getting, you know, basically like a short. Yeah. So if you want uh, to hear us talk about the IBLP, we go into much greater detail about the IBLP in some earlier episodes. We also go into some uh, detail about the Duggars in some earlier episodes. So if you want to hear about that, uh, check our back catalog for that. Just did a, a, we also just did a huge episode on Doug Phillips, who was 
the leader of Vision Forum, which is not IBLP strictly, but heavily, heavily affiliated with them and the the tenets of biblical patriarchy. Yeah, that, so that, that's another thing that you would want to know if your interest lies towards that direction. Yeah, it's very interesting stuff. Um, I think now would be a really good time to talk about why and how you got out. Maybe your story, give us a general timeline of some stuff, you know, maybe talk about what we're doing here together and why we decided to do this as a podcast. So let me tell you about my first conflict with IFB teachings. The first time that this didn't seem right to me. Okay. So you're growing up in, how old are you at this point? I grew up in an IFB pastor's home pretty much from birth. My dad was an assistant pastor for a while, but always in pastoral leadership within the IFB. My first conflict with them came, I couldn't tell you an exact age, but I was between the ages of 9 and 12. So it would be like 2003, 2004-ish, yeah. yeah. One thing about about PTSD for me is uh, I have memories, but they get a bit scrambled. Like I know what happened, but I can't, I can't, I'm not very good at at pinpointing exactly when it happened. Uh, The IFB teach a very specific salvation doctrine. The thing I had an issue with was related to that. They teach that if someone never heard the gospel, if they never heard about Jesus, that person would go to hell because they failed to accept Jesus and get saved. So if you're a person living in a country where Christianity doesn't really have a presence, maybe you've got a local religion, I don't know, uh, you know, some indigenous practices, uh, that's all you've ever known. The IFB teaching would be that you would end up in hell because you never accepted Jesus into your heart, even though you'd never heard of this guy, Jesus. Yes. The only way for that a person in that situation to go to heaven would be if a missionary comes and fixes them. So that's motivation uh, for you to be around fixing. So that's motivation for you guys to become missionaries. That's the intention. Yes. Um, so say that there was a young IFB kid and they got called by God to be a missionary, but then they got corrupted by the worldly influence of evolution or the Teletubbies or whatever. And they decided not to be a missionary. It's that kids, so they don't become a missionary, and the remote people that they were supposed to reach never hear about Jesus, and all 1,000 members of that remote tribe in Papua New Guinea or whatever die and go to hell. It's that kid's fault, I'm doing air quotes again, that they never got to hear about Jesus, or it's God's fault for not sending someone else, because in the IFB teaching, God is omniscient and would have known beforehand that that kid would end up not following his plan. So God would have needed a backup and God would have known that. But for whatever reason, he didn't decide to put a backup in place. So it's the kid who didn't become a missionary is his fault that they don't go to heaven or it's God's fault for not sending a backup. But it's the person that never had a chance that goes to a terrible burning place of torture for all eternity. Right. Because if the kids didn't work for me, because if the kid's been saved, you know, once saved, always saved. So even if you're, if you get saved and then later you're like, you know what, evolution is is the thing. Um, the Earth isn't six. I'm gonna 000. become a, an atheist now because if you believe in evolution, you're automatically an atheist, as we've discussed. Yeah, so it automatically like you still get into heaven, but right. None so of the, the people, teaching is yeah. that that kid would would um feel a transient guilt in heaven, but then Doesn't God like would absolve him. Well, no, then God would absolve him of his guilt and he would never remember it for the rest of eternity. So the consequence for the kid who didn't become a missionary is you feel bad for a minute. And the consequence for the people that he was supposed to get saved is that they burn in a place of 
physical torture forever. And so the idea is that you're supposed to get really upset by the, Makes me mad. Yeah, the prospect of the like most of the world literally going to hell. And you're supposed to say, oh, well, now it's my mission to go convert the whole world. But instead, your response, which obviously much more logical, you're like, that can't be right. You know? Yeah, I, I found this scripture that says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I memorized that scripture because that's what made it not match up for me was something I found in the Bible. If it's not God's will that anybody would ever go to hell, but God is not making sure that everybody gets a fair shot at heaven, how does that line up? Right. And I just want to clarify to our new audience that even though the IFB you know, was really big on brainwashing children, Sadie's mother and Sadie's father took a really strong interest in supplementing her education, you know, teaching good critical thinking skills because that's those are things that they valued as important. Yeah, my parents um, were committed to the beliefs and practices of this group, uh, but they were all they also wanted me to have an education and they didn't approve of the fact that that girls were not educated as well in the cult. So they did try to supplement that. But I was like 10, 11, 12 dealing with these huge philosophical questions and just wrestling with this spiritual idea. And my parents were trying to answer my questions from the IFB point of view, which is that uh, if a person never has a chance to get to know God, they can look up at the stars and realize that there's a creator and then they can ask the creator to send a missionary and then he will send a missionary. But that still came up short for me because what if the missionary just decides not to go? That it, it, I, They couldn't fully answer my questions. And it's strange to think about a child trying to figure out free will, which is a question that Christians have been writing thousand page tomes about for like a thousand years. But that's what being an IFB kid is like. Yeah. Like being an IFB child is losing sleep at 10 years old over number one, am I going to burn in hell? And number two, how is God making this work? Because this doesn't make sense to me. Also for artists, basically Sadie's whole family is all like out by now. So mother, father, brothers, all of them are out by now. I They are and I don't I don't give specifics on their journeys because I don't want to tell somebody's story that isn't mine. Uh all of my family have remained Christian. I think I can comfortably say that. Several of them are involved in church work and really happy about that and I fully support that. They have all become more compassionate people. They have all become more loving people. I'm very proud of everyone in my immediate family and what they have done. Uh, but nobody is is strictly IFB anymore. So one thing I was thinking about, though, is that like, because I've met your dad, I've met your mom. They're intelligent people. They're they're kind hearted people. Is that so you're asking them these questions. You got to wonder, were they like, you know, she's got a good point. Like, like. Really I, you know, you I don't I don't know like what was going on. Um I don't know what was going on with that. Maybe sometime we'll get them on the show and then we can we can ask about that it. Or get your dad be, on. That would be great. You'll get my dad. You'll, you'll never get my mom on the show. Anyway, I never got an answer that satisfied me for that question that I had. And while I was really committed to what I had been taught and I was really a true believer, I was a I was a ten year old zealot, but that question opened the door for a tiny, tiny bit of doubt. It opened the door of critical thinking, just the tiniest crack, just the little, little tiny bit of light. So as life went on, I found more places where the IFB beliefs just didn't work for me, just didn't make sense to me. 
And I tried. I tried so hard to self-brainwash. I tried to fix all of these issues in my mind and logic my way through it. But there were always those seeds of doubt that I just couldn't put to rest. So this is the root of it. How does this come to a head and how does this result in you deciding you don't want to be part of the IFB anymore? So having doubts about this particular fine point of salvation doctrine led to doubts about other teachings of the IFB church, but I had just tried everything to make it work. I was just trying to put a square peg in a round hole in my mind. I had committed to the IFB so hard and I went to Hiles Anderson College which is a college run by the cult. Yeah, they have cult college guys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the IFB, all the churches are independent, so they aren't formally affiliated with each other, but they are they are informally extremely interconnected. So one of the largest churches in the cult, whose pastor is typically seen as a leader within the movement, although he has no formal authority over other pastors, he has a lot of informal authority. Um, that church has a college and... Uh, boy, is that college fun to talk about? Mm. <laughs> Different degree programs for men and women. You got to take classes about how to please your husband. And oh, it's fun. Yeah, taking um, marriage and motherhood and pleasing your husband 101. <laughs> uh, I want to say it's not dirty, but honestly, it kind of was. Did they uh, teach you to. to... No. I'm going to cut that. <laughs> no, I didn't know what that was. Did they have like, diagrams? Literally... No, well, not in that class. You're getting into way too much past episode stuff that I don't have time to explain. <laughs> so I was going to go there. I was going to study for education because that, uh, getting an education degree was the most educated that a woman could get in the cult. And I wanted as much education as I could because my parents really did instill a love of learning in me. I was going to go there. I was going to find myself an IFB husband. I was going to be a pastor's wife or assistant pastor's wife or a missionary's wife because those are career fields that are available for women in the cult. You can get a degree in it. You can't. Literally, like, I'm not joking. You can literally get a degree in marriage and motherhood from this cult college. No, you you really can't. So I went my freshman year. I was, I really tried hard. I, like, tried to be the best little Hiles Anderson cult college student that I could be. I was, like, the Lisa Simpson of Hiles Anderson College, let me tell you. And during my freshman year, I saw a lot of hypocrisy, a lot of things that bothered me. Uh, I've talked on the podcast before about a fellow student cursing at me. He, so it was, a, it was a class where you had to present to the class on a regular basis. And the teacher would sit in the back of the room to judge your projection. Like, were you able to speak loud enough that people could hear you? That sort of thing. And this fellow student would sit on the front row whenever I was supposed to present and whisper curse words at me to try to trip me up and make me fail the class. And I reported it to the, I like learned cuss words from that and reported it to the dean and the dean didn't do anything about it. So I saw things that, that bugged me and I saw things that didn't seem right, but I was still super emotionally committed to it. I was still going to be the Lisa Simpson of Hiles Anderson College. Gosh darn it. And between my freshman and sophomore years, while I was on summer break, it came out that Jack Scopp, who was the most prominent man in the IFB, he was the pastor of First Baptist Church of Hammond, which runs the college. He was the leader of my college. The news came out that he had committed some kind of serious sexual sin. So Scop was basically cult leader. That's the term I use. The IFB would take issue with it. I feel like it's fair to say that. Scop had inherited the leadership of that church and because and basically because of that, the IFB 
from his father-in-law. He was fairly voted in as pastor, but also everybody knew it was going to happen. So I don't, I don't know. It's nebulous, nebulous nepotism. There's a band name. And so the, like the cult you grew up in, uh, it was very big on purity culture, yet the leader is caught up in a sex scandal. Yeah. Sexual purity is absolutely everything for this group. And at first, the news made it seem, the news that came out, the press release from, from the church, made it seem that Scott had had an affair, which was bad enough. That would have been enough to get him disqualified as the pastor and to cause a massive shakeup in the entire IFB movement. But as the summer went on and I got closer to needing to go back for my sophomore year, we found out that what had actually happened is that he had sex with a 17-year-old girl. Probably literally exactly on the day that she reached the age of majority, the age of consent in their state. And because Indiana doesn't protect victims based on the unfair power balance between a victim and an abuser who's a pastor, who's their spiritual leader, who tells them that Jesus wants them to have sex. The only thing that they could actually arrest him for was violating the Man Act, which is a sex trafficking act. He took his minor victim across state lines for the purpose of sex. So looking back, Thank goodness he did that stupid thing and took her across state lines because otherwise he might not have seen jail time. So if he was going to do something terrible, I'm glad that he did it in a stupid way so that he could go to jail. Yeah, not saying it's good that he did it because this was... No, no he, did, he did a terrible, awful thing. But uh, fortunately for his victim and for the rest of us, he did it in a stupid way. And fortunately, it was illegal. So he went to jail. Yeah. Yes. So... um. Scop was convicted in 2013, and he went to federal prison for 10 years. Still in prison. By the way, I'm going to protest when he gets out. Yeah. it's This is 2013. You've been in this cult for the first two decades of your life, and you've got some doubts, but this happens. So how are you feeling? You're feeling betrayed? You're feeling angry? Are you immediately just ready to leave? Not quite. So going back to the summer of 2012 when the scandal broke, my dad sat us down, me and my two brothers. And we would have been 1917, 15. And he told us what had happened. And so when it first broke, when we just thought he had had an affair and we didn't know that he had committed a crime. And I was overcome with rage, not at Scop, but at my dad. If you know me in real life, you probably know that I do have a temper, but I have a very long fuse. And if you listen to back episodes of the show, I think you'd know that my dad and I are extremely close. My dad is my hero. When he told me what Scop had done, I acted extremely out of character for myself. I called him a liar. I was ready to completely turn my back on my dad. And that was what opened my eyes. And that's when I realized that I was in a cult. I realized even just in the minutes and hours immediately after that, of course, I apologized to my dad. And I realized that my loyalty, if my loyalty to Scop was so great that I wouldn't believe my dad over him, that was a sign that something was very, very wrong. You know, every time I hear you tell that story, I'm amazed how at the level to which this cult divides up families, the way it does that. Yeah. I and mean, you've, especially now, I think this is maybe the first time that you've heard me tell it since meeting my dad. Yeah. And since seeing the relationship that we have in person. I think it, it's probably more meaningful after that. Having met your father, he's a man where I could not see him knowingly and intentionally telling lies to people mm -mm. like on you know on purpose like he he does not seem like the guy who would ever be intentionally dishonest about things no my my dad's father my grandfather uh who i named my daughter's first name after her name is charlotte he, he was charles um 
he was the definition of integrity. I have never, I don't believe I've ever met a person with more integrity than my grandfather and my dad is following right in his footsteps. They are both just men, honest men, men of integrity. And and that I would turn on my dad like that over this preacher who I barely knew. Just because it he's was so in, like, what's Because the I had been conditioned to be loyal to him. Interesting. That, I mean, that's just fascinating. It, it is. And it was, it was shocking enough to me, like the, the extent to which I acted out of character in that situation was enough to, for me to go, oh, this is changing who I am. There's something not right here. So I did go back to Hiles Anderson for another school year in the fall of 2012 because they had a financially abusive program that we'll talk about later. And I felt like I had to, but it was too late. My eyes had been opened and I saw all the hypocrisy around me and I could not unsee it. And since then, the lid has just been blown off this whole thing. So many more scandals, old and new, have come to light and so many people have spoken out about what they went through. It turns out I went to college with two different young women who were abused by incredibly prominent men in the cult and probably dozens more who were abused by less famous or less prominent men in the cult. And the men rarely, you know, they rarely see consequences for these actions, do they? Yeah. Uh, recently, we've started to see more due to people doing very hard work. Yeah. Due to victim advocates and victims standing up for themselves and the entire movement of podcasts and blogs and documentaries that has sprung up to support survivors and victims. A lot of people are working very hard. And our show is the tiniest, tiniest part of a huge movement that has finally started to see a few people get justice. So this happened seven, eight years ago, uh, like we said earlier, and you decided to get out, but it's taken you a while to really come and tell your story. What did, what did that look like for you? Was Because you've spoken a lot about your PTSD, or you've mentioned it a couple times in this episode, and I think it's important to make clear to our audience, especially the new listeners, that cult deconstruction isn't an on-off switch. It isn't just like, okay, these are all the things that the cult taught me. Now I don't believe any of them anymore. <laughs> right. Because you don't know all the other stuff. You don't that, just yeah. make a list and then you, you you checklist it off and, okay, I'm done. Is this right or wrong? Let me look it up. Wikipedia. Okay, here we go. <laughs> this is wrong. Okay, don't believe that anymore. This is wrong. Okay, don't believe that anymore. Okay, great. Brain fixed. Brain fixed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's definitely not like that. You get out of a cult and you just do not know where to go. And there's a lot of blank time for a couple of reasons. A lot of the, the intervening time between I think I'm going to get out of the IFB and getting to where I am now. Th the first thing I had to do was rest. My physical health was just destroyed from years of poor nutrition, from dieting to try to live up to the IFB's expectations for women to be thin, from walking miles in the heat and the cold out soul winning from a lack of sleep. Honestly, my hips and back were messed up from trying to walk without any natural hip motion for years and trying to sit in a very particular modest way. That's one that doesn't get mentioned very often. Uh, the effects on women or people who were raised as women in the cult, um, the effects on our hips and backs and ankles and knees from being encouraged to wear high heels all the time and also having to sit, stand, and walk in a very particular way to not tempt men. So I really needed to rest and get my health in order. I also had to figure out who I even was. 
because the cult had prevented me from knowing who I was as a person without them. I didn't know what movies I liked, what music I liked, how to dress myself without a list of rules, where do normal people shop for rules, how do normal people text. I had to relearn how to live life. So I went to the movies for the first time. I learned how to shop for pants and figured out through a lot of trial and error that most people do in junior high what my pants size is. <laughs> uh, it, it was it was very awkward in my early 20s, man. Oh. I learned what it was like to sit and watch broadcast television, which I had rarely done before. I watched Netflix and looked up shows like The Office that are big parts of pop culture and watched them so I could get everybody's references. I learned how to drink without throwing up, which is also a very awkward and embarrassing process, <laughs> which most people do at a much younger age. So I, I had to I had to I had to rest. I had to fix years of damage like, i have a gray streak in my hair which i fully attribute to the to the ifb i got it when i was about 16 i have like a stacy london gray streak it's just um it's over my left ear so you don't see it as much but i fully attribute that to the stress of the ifb like, wrestling with those huge spiritual things as a child it's not good for your brain and it's not good for your body i had to so i i rested i got my health in order figured some basics out and then after that i felt i got to a point where i felt like i needed to do some research deconstruction for me has looked like a lot of wanting to know why these things happened because i can ex i can accept well, I have PTSD because of these things that happened. And because I have PTSD, the rest of my life is going to look a little bit different than it would have had I not gone through those things. I can accept that and integrate that trauma and be very much okay with where I've landed in life. But what I need to know for that acceptance is why. I can very much be okay, but I I need to know why it happened. And I'm not even just talking about like, oh, well, why did this person abuse me? Or why was this cult mean to me? But I need to know why the cult came into existence. So I read about Scop's crime. I downloaded all his legal documents and read through his sentencing folder. I read letters from people defending him and picked apart their reasoning and what they had to say about him. I read about other IFB scandals. I read personal stories from people who had gotten out recently and people who had gotten out 10 years before and people who had gotten out before I was born and talked about why they had gotten out. I talked to people who were knowledgeable about the history of the IFB, digging in really hard to where did this start and how did this movement get to the place where it is now? Because I, I felt like, and th this isn't everybody's journey, I fully respect, but for me, I had to understand all of that background to be able to come to a place of acceptance and then figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I also did a lot of therapy, <laughs> um, which we've talked about in a recent episode. And I did a lot of writing, uh, working through my story and working through my beliefs. So what was it, though, that made you decide to start a podcast with me about it. So I knew pretty early in this whole process that I would eventually want to share my story. I would say around the time I'd been about two years past, so 2015, early 2016, I knew that sharing my story was something that I would want to do one day. And I've always been a writer. I love writing. And I thought that maybe I would write a book or do a blog or something to get my words out there. But I realized that there are, there are so many other people who have written books and people who have written blogs. And my story is important, but it's not 
different from a lot of other stories that are already out there. It's not to say that my story doesn't deserve to be shared, but just simply telling my life story, I wouldn't be writing anything new. And who, like, what purpose would it serve to say the same thing that others have already said? That's the thing about cults. A lot of us had an almost identical background in childhood because that's what cults do is they, they cookie cutter, they assembly line a person. What I realized is that I do have something that's unique though. It's not my story. My story is so similar to so many other people, but what I have that's unique is all those years of research that I did trying to understand why. I have, and because of my position when I was in the cult as a pastor's child, and because of because my dad is a, a historian and knows about these things, I have an understanding of the cultural context of the IFB. I was positioned in it and committed to it in a very particular way that gives me a pretty broad understanding of the culture of the IFB. Coming from the cult into the real world was like joining a completely new culture. It was like moving to a foreign country. And I still kind of sometimes feel like an expat. So what I can do that other people aren't already doing and what I can do that's different than just sharing my story is I can chronicle this culture. I believe that while the IFB is a very messed up and dark subculture, it is a anthropologically fascinating subculture. And I can merge my personal stories with my understanding of this culture from somebody who grew up very deep in it. And I can give people a window into this almost foreign country that I grew up in. Also, you know, I think that just from having interacted with a lot of cult survivors over the course of doing this show with you is that recovery really doesn't look the same for everybody. I mean, there are so many people who we've met who have been like the thing that you talked about, Sadie, that happened to me almost word for word, letter for letter, you know, note for note, beat for beat. But people's recoveries and people's uh, uh, deconstructions they're all unique, you know? And so even if your upbringing was in line with everybody else's, your life outside of the cult is your own. Yes. And I think that I can explain that process to people. I also noticed as far as starting this podcast and the tone that we choose to take and the direction that we choose to go with things, I noticed that as media started to come out about the IFB, a lot of it was focused on and targeted to two groups of people. One group is the group that came out out and then landed comfortably in evangelical Christianity. Not in a cult anymore, but still very strict Christian. The other group is the group that came out and became atheists. <laughs> and there's nothing, I don't judge people who are in either one of those groups. I have friends who are in both of those groups. Uh, I support people who are in both of those groups if that's where they really feel like they're meant to be. I am very happy that they have found a good path for them. But I saw those two groups finding a post-deconstruction internet home for themselves. And I I didn't feel like there was an internet home for people like me. Where's the internet home for ex-fundamentalists who are still religious, but also do not tolerate anti-LGBT sentiment? Where's the home for people who still want to have fairly deep discussions about doctrine and teachings, but also laugh at the dark 
Yeah. Like, where's the where's the home for ex-evangelical people who are still heavily into religion and spirituality and also loudly anti-racist? Where, like, where is the home? I, I didn't feel like there was a home and I thought maybe I could make one. Yeah, and that's one of the things I think is interesting about you. Like you said at the beginning, you're like, if you looked at me, you wouldn't think I was raised in a cult. Uh, because you know everything aside with your upbringing, you're you're like a normal person. You know, you've, you've... thank you. I don't hear that too often. <laughs> no, like th- that's the thing though is that like we're, we're friends. I know you. And granted, like this is coming from me, so gauge what I say is normal. But <laughs> you know, you're like <laughs> through that, you're, like you're you're a regular person. You're not dissimilar in a lot of respects from other people that i know like aside from your background you know you've got a husband you've got a new baby daughter very cute very precious you live in a nice apartment in a city you've got a new kia forte uh you do things you regular people do like movies music um I think that's a good thing for people to see, which is that even if they've been treated really poorly, uh, just abysmally, even if it takes a long time for them to get to a place where they can live normally, it is possible. It takes a lot of work, but it is possible. Yeah. And I, I try to show both sides of that on the podcast. I don't believe like the the toxic positivity of, well, if you've been treated poorly, you just need to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and be positive and make a good life for yourself. Because I think that that ignores the years of trauma therapy and pain and PTSD and deconstruction that I went through, which was incredibly hard. So I try to, I try to show both sides of, oh, this is hard. This really sucked for me at times, but also through a lot of hard work and through having a wonderful supportive husband and through having good friends and through having good therapists, I've been able to make a life that I'm extremely happy with. And I want to be able to show that to people who are doubting that they'll ever get to that point. Because I know I did. I know there were so many times where I just felt like I would never get to where I am now. And here I am. So I I try to show the journey, but also show a really nice picture of the destination, a realistic picture of the destination that people who leave cults and people who leave high pressure groups can get to. So one question um, I have though sometimes, because your story is really amazing. And this is also a question that people ask why you decided that you wanted to do a podcast with me of all people. Like I I still sometimes wonder that. Um, But I, I think other people more, maybe they want to know what prompted, you know, what prompted this, like how we met and what made us want to start this together. Because we started this during the pandemic. This is like a pandemic project yeah. that we started so, out on. A little bit of it was we were just both really bored. Yeah. Because we, we started it during like the lockdown phase. This was like May of 2020. Because we were friends uh, because we worked at a car dealership together. We were friends yeah. because I brainwashed you with the ARC triangle. <laughs> That's true. No, we literally, we, we just worked at the service center of a car dealership. And we just were talking one day. She noticed that I had a bag that had the logo of Canadian progressive rock band Rush on it and she's like oh you like Rush I like Rush uh, my husband got me into Rush I'm like oh that's cool and you know we had a conversation that's how we became friends we started talking about religion because I'm Jewish she finds religion interesting um we 
had some conversations about that and it was cool. Um, and, and then one day I said something like, oh, yeah, because I was raised in a cult. I was like, wait, what? Like on a compound, you know? And you being Jewish, like you don't have, well, you didn't a year ago, yeah. have much of a concept of cultural Christianity. No, because I was raised in Portland, Oregon. We, we both live in Portland, Oregon. I was raised in Portland, Oregon, which is a very secular city and it like and it has been for a while so when i was growing up we were both born in 93 so when i was growing up i think outward displays of religion were seen as something that was very much in line with conservatism and conservatism like if you were a fan of george bush you weren't cool and so outwardly displaying religion uh would make you like super not cool if you lived in portland and so like a lot of the you know sadie's from the middle of the country in the south so just completely different culture and so she would say things to me like do you know who the duggars are i'm like no who is that? I didn't know anything about any of this stuff. Right. So you being a person who's familiar with religion, but a person who is so far outside of the paradigm of cultural Christianity made for really good conversations because I'm always interested in religions other than my own. Um, I'm always interested in, in philosophy and, and learning what somebody else believes. So it made for really good conversations. And there, there was a list of things that I needed to make a podcast a reality. I needed someone with a fairly dark sense of humor who could still turn around and go back to a hopeful ending. I needed somebody who would really motivate me and keep me on track because I'm a terrible self-starter. But I find, and a lot of cult survivors find, that the shock of outsiders when they hear about the things that we've been through is really validating because it reinforces that what we went through wasn't normal and it wasn't okay. It's not that we're saying things for shock value, but the shock and surprise validates the things that we've gone through and I think it can be really healing for a lot of us. I thought that would be good for our listeners to experience because that's something that I experienced in my conversations with you. And also like, I like, I genuinely like spending time with you, which oh. is nice because you're sometimes the only adult I talk to other than my husband. We do have a lot of listeners who are also cult survivors. One of the things that we have heard regularly back from them is that they do find it very validating when they hear somebody actually being shocked about what they went through. Yeah, I went pretty deep into that on our therapy episode. If you want to hear a little bit more about the, the reasoning behind that for me. Yeah. You had that genuinely shocked reaction. But I was genuinely was shocked. Well, and it wasn't in a way of like, oh, I feel sorry for you because I don't really, I don't want people to feel sorry for me. No, pity is um, the worst. If somebody pity. I, yeah, I've mourned what I lost. There are a lot of things that I lost, specifically elements of childhood that I would love to get back if I could and that I intend to give to my kid. But I've I've mourned that and I've accepted that and I've realized that if I live to be 100 years old and the cult took the first 20 years of my life, that I still get 80% of my life for me. And all I have to do is be 20% more awesome every day and I'll make up for it. So like I've, I've, I've come, come to terms with that. So your shock reaction was not, oh, I feel sorry for you. But you were willing to laugh at that dark stuff with me. So it was it was a really good combination. And I was able to get on that level with you about cultural and religious questions and comparing belief systems. And it wasn't it didn't feel unbalanced because we each had a belief system that the other person was learning about. And it wasn't like we were treating each other like zoo animals or something. Yeah, I think that this is like the fact that we do have all these different sorts of beliefs and different ways of looking at things. Even, you know, a lot of times on a lot of issues, we believe the same thing, but we believe them for different reasons. 
<laughs> I think that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, I, I, I like hosting the show with you. Um, also, you tend to intellectualize things more and I tend to do the opposite, which is ironic because I'm the ones who went to <laughs> liberal arts school for undergrad. I, I think I learned the power of a good team and the power of very different people working towards the same goal from my marriage. You know my husband. And you know that I'm pretty much little orphan Annie. Mm -hmm. And he's he's a nice guy. He's a wonderful man, but he's very practical. I almost said pessimistic. <laughs> he's a very cut and dry type of person. Pragmatic very logical. is what I would say. Yeah, Pragmatic yeah. is a great word. So I and I've learned from our relationship the value of having two different personalities working together for the same goal. And I think that dynamic shows up well in our podcast too, because we balance each other well. Without you, I'd probably go off on a rambling tangent about theology every episode. And without me, you'd probably just make butt jokes all day. That's true. So when you put the two of us together, you get <laughs> something that's a lot more listenable i think the dynamic's really good that being said we do have episodes where you go into theology a lot yeah well we also have episodes where you go very into butt jokes so mm. i think it evens out remember the one where jack howells had the the sermon that was called duty yes in the entire episode <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was i was like let me share my serious re research that i stayed up all night doing and you were like huh, duty no that was an episode i watched hours and hours i watched literally three days i spent watching tv from the you did, you did a lot of work on that i did episode. A, i will not and a lot of yeah. poop jokes but no on this show we do laugh about the bad stuff um and before we go i would just want to say a few things about why the story is interesting to me i mean obviously cult survivor that's interesting but I find a lot of times that these cults gain notoriety for being weird or being strange or being out there. You know, they are like flashy, you know, Waco, Branch Davidians, Jonestown, you know, the poison Kool-Aid. That's a flashy cult way to go. You know, this mm -hmm. cult to me, I think it's more interesting because it's it's not just less weird, but it's also more commonplace. You know what I'm saying? Your mm -hmm. neighbors who are just very religious, they could be members. You know, if they're embedded within politics and culture, you know, the think the Duggars, think about how, and this is true, former Vice President Mike Pence came and spoke at the, the IFB Church, the, the First Baptist Church of Hammond, when he was running for governor of Indiana. This is true. Look it up. Like, he literally spoke at this cult church. If anything, for me, that is scarier than those other ones, because, you know, like anybody looking at Branch Davidians knows that it's a cult. But this one, though, it flies under the radar, and fingerprints are all over american history and you know american political system and for me you know since i've started doing this show it's like you know when you learn a new word and you suddenly hear everybody using that word it's like mm -hmm. that you know it's opened my eyes i see it everywhere i don't know whether i should say you're welcome or i'm sorry no it's good i'm glad i know this stuff an alternate title that we considered for this podcast was the cult next door and then we found out that that's actually the title of a documentary about one of the ati training centers which is like the same thing <laughs> which is like the same thing yeah. But the IFB puts so much effort into appearing like a wholesome, family-oriented group that's harmless, if maybe a little bit silly in their beliefs. And that's what allows them to have political power. That's what allows them to recruit people who don't fully know what they're getting into. It's also what allows them not only to physically and sexually abuse women and children, but to emotionally and mentally abuse people because they do it in a subtle way and they keep people cloistered from the world so that the signs of abuse are harder to spot when they do have to interact with the outside world. People used to see my family out shopping or in restaurants and comment on how well-behaved me and my brothers were and compliment my parents. And those people couldn't see from the outside the stress and overwork 
work that my dad was going through. They couldn't see my mom's intelligence and talents going completely unnoticed in the church and the expectations that were on her. They didn't see us kids crying in our beds at night because we were afraid that we were going to hell or our family members were going to hell. And it, the, the cult, it, it's like that. It is subtle and it's malicious and it's terrifying. And it's not my goal to bring down the IFB movement. Uh, it's not my goal to attack any specific person except for Steven Anderson and Jack Scott, which I think should be obvious. <laughs> it's my it's my goal, though, to, to educate people about this group and the influence that they have and to be uh, to to document this culture, because I do hope that it won't the IFB won't exist in 50 years. And I think that that having first person documentary of that is important. I want to encourage people who are maybe on the fence or people who have left and don't really know where they're going about where they can potentially end up in life. Yeah. And so I think we've made a long enough episode for now. Yeah, so uh, we're going to wrap up. Uh, if you want to follow the Leaving Eden podcast, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Leaving Eden Podcast, on Twitter at Leaving Eden Pod. Uh, you can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can join our subreddit, which is also called uh, Eden Exodus. So go search that in your Reddit bar. Sadie, do you want to plug your social media? Sure. You can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, uh, on Twitter at Hell Yes Sadie, or on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Clubhouse at G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. Thank you guys for listening to this. You guys have a great day. Bye bye. I'm